Hello and welcome to the Truth Be Told podcast. I'm Shady. I'm Shabs. Welcome back for another episode with us. I think we're on episode nine now. Running slightly late this month. I don't think we're that late. A few days maybe. <laughs> Some anxious people out there. Um, probably twiddling their thumbs, as we call it. Oh, we hope so anyway. <laughs> probably nobody is no. listening. Our, uh, just a quick apology uh, from my side. Shabs did the uh, recording on the last episode and although I uh, put the music on um, in the background for a reading, I'd, I accidentally pressed mute. <laughs> Sabotaging. <laughs> so I accidentally pressed mute, not realising, and um, I got trolled off. The story never sounds as good without the atmospheric music in the back. No, no, I should have. Should have said the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm sure we won't. That error won't happen again. To be honest with you. Um, so, what you been up to? I've just been through the city centre of where we live. And got off. it was so busy. Why? I don't know. It was just busy. I actually had to get out of there. There were so many people. It's a bit strange for. I don't normally go at this time. It's the rush hour time, isn't it? For the buses and oh, cars. you mean for, you mean you mean work business? I just thought there was something going on that no, we didn't know about. No, just really, really busy, mm-hmm. um, and they had some student event going on, so that's probably why. Yeah, it's Manchester City Centre's like that, isn't it? Are you looking at me like I'm a weirdo? <laughs> you gave away where we live. <laughs> um, Manchester's not one street. <laughs> <laughs> True, <laughs> it's massive. Um, you talk about giving away where we live. I think people probably figure that out from our accents. Mm, possibly, if they're from the UK. I don't know if in abroad people would know what Mancunians sound like. There's not many Mancunians in media. They're not, but... Uh, Carl Pilkington? When I... Um, Maybe. Well, possibly. When, when I work, people say they can hear my Manchester accent a mile away. Yeah, but they're not in a different country. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but, you know, anyway. I really like the South African um, accent. Do I you? just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> Why? I just really like it. I've heard a lot of it in a in a comedian that I'm watching, and I think the accent is great. It's kind of Australian, kind of English. It's yeah, weird. it's a strange one, isn't mm. it? Um, I won't do an impression. Go on, try. <laughs> no, I can't. I dare you. <laughs> I'm awful at them. Go on. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on. <laughs> I should have finished drinking her water. <laughs> glug, glug, glug. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. So let's jump right into episode nine. Dennis Raider, also known as BTK Part One. The man known as BTK Strangler was first born as Dennis Lynn Raider. He was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Pittsburgh is a small city at the intersection of Kansas, Oklahoma and Missouri. March 9th, 1945 was the day young Dorothea and William Rader would bring their new son into the world. Dennis was one of four children born to Dorothea and William. And as the young family began to grow, the Raiders would decide to move into the biggest city of Kansas, Wichita. Wichita would be home to Dennis throughout his childhood and his adolescent years. As a young boy, he was regarded as a normal kid. He was a member of the Boy Scouts 
and he even participated in local church group activities. He attended Riverview Elementary School and again was about average. Nothing spectacular and nothing too alarming. Just an average young boy who perhaps seemed a bit withdrawn. Young Dennis Rader, though, already held his own dark secrets. In later years, Dennis Rader would admit that his fascination with bondage and torture started at this age. He admits that in his free time, he would enjoy torturing and killing animals. This is a common trait among serial killers. Jeffrey Dahmer would share similar hobbies. Dennis would usually kill cats and dogs by hanging them. It would bring him pleasure to watch as they would struggle for life and die by strangulation. As he reached puberty, his fantasies of bondage and strangulation would start to shift towards women. Dennis admits that he would often times fantasise about tying up girls and becoming aroused at the idea of doing whatever he wanted to do to them as they were bound and helpless. One of his favourite women to fantasise about was Annette Funicello. Funicello was one of the most famous musketeers from the original Mickey Mouse Club. Funicello was a child actress from the age of 12 and was three years older than young Dennis Rader. Though these younger years of Rader's crimes and dark obsessions, we can already see his ability to maintain secrecy. Obviously, he would not let anyone know of his twisted forms of pleasure and no one would find out until later in life. This secrecy also played into his personality. People who were said to have known him described him as quiet and polite. Overall, he basically liked to keep to himself and was not very sociable. He was said to be focused and studious. Some even remarked that Dennis seemed to lack any sense of humour at all and was disinterested in any music that was around in those times. When Dennis Rader would speak to someone, he would be very attentive. He would choose his words wisely and listen carefully before responding. Dennis Rader would graduate from Wichita Heights High School in 1963. After leaving high school, Rader would try to pick up a job as a grocery clerk. In 1965, he decided that he would leave home and go to college. Rader would go to Kansas Wesleyan College in Salina, Kansas. He would only leave from Wichita, his home, because the college was 90 miles from home. He would return home on the weekends to work in the meat department of his local grocery store. At school, Rader would receive poor grades and prove himself to be a below-average student. However, unlike his high school years, Rader would make an attempt to come out of his shell and become a more sociable member of society. Dennis ended up joining a fraternity on campus. Though he had entered into college and even joined a fraternity, men were still being drafted for the Vietnam War. In the summer of 1966, Dennis Rader would leave college and enlist into the United States Air Force. Some speculate that Dennis' voluntary enlistment into military service was to avoid being drafted and eventually being shipped off to fight in Vietnam. To avoid the United States Marine Corps or the United States Army, one had a better chance at avoiding the war as a whole. Dennis Rader was 21 years old when he enlisted in the Air Force and he attended his basic training 
at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. From there, he moved on to his advanced technical training, which took him to Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. Joining the Air Force would not keep Raider from deploying altogether. He would be stationed in Alabama, Greece, Turkey, Korea, the Pacific, and eventually Japan. Japan would be his last duty station. During his time, he achieved the rank of Sergeant and the Air Force Good Conduct Medal. Raider also proved himself an excellent shooter, earning the Small Arms Expert Markmanship Ribbon. His former colleagues would describe his time there as unremarkable. One man described Raider as one of those guys that just blended in. During his station in Japan, he was said to have frequented many prostitutes. He would often attempt to persuade these young women into letting him choke them. They often times she refused. It is curious as to what possibly may have happened during one of these encounters with his growing fascination for strangling women. However, there has never been any evidence that such events actually occurred. After four years in military service in 1970, Dennis Rader was actively discharged from the Air Force. He would still have to serve two years on the reserves following his active duty. The following year, Rader would marry Paula Deitz. Rader was 26 years old and Paula was 23. Paula grew up in the same town and attended the same high school as Rader. Dennis picked up the job as an IGA, an independent grocer of Australia, supermarket back in his hometown of Wichita, Kansas. Raider's mother worked at the same store. Dennis picked up a job in the meat department of the store. Paula was working as a bookkeeper and the two moved in together in Park City, just a few miles from the Raider house near North Wichita. Dennis continued to pursue his higher education by attending Butler County Community College. He majored in electronics piggybacking off his military experience installing antennas. In 1972, Dennis would leave the IGA Superstore and gain employment at Wichita's largest employer, the Coleman Company. Coleman Company specialises in manufacturing camping goods and materials. They make everything from tents to sleeping bags to whatever else you may need for the outdoors. Two of Dennis's victims also worked at Colvin Company, Julia Otero and Catherine Bright. His time at Colvin Company was short-lived and in 1973 he abandoned the job and applied for a job at Cessna. Cessna was a manufacturer for small aircrafts. Also around this time, Dennis Rader would earn his associate's degree from the Butler County Community College in Electronics. He would further choose to continue his higher education by seeking his bachelor's degree at Wichita State University. It would take him six more years of night school to earn his degree. Later that same year, Dennis Rader would be let go from his job at the Cessna Manufacturing Company. Dennis once again found himself with a lot of time on his hands. This is where it was said that he fell back into his obsessive fantasies. He was considered very unhappy during this time and would spend a lot of his time in deep thought. A couple of months later, he would take his first human life. 
the life of Julie Otero and her family. Julie was a Puerto Rican immigrant living in New York when she met Joseph Otero. Joseph was also a Puerto Rican immigrant. They both grew up in the Harlem Spanish side of town. Joseph had emigrated to New York when he was a young boy. While living in the city he gained a reputation for boxing and rose through the ranks, ultimately becoming a boxing champion. The two fell in love quickly and were married after two years. Nine months later their son Charlie would be born. When Joseph was old enough he joined the Air Force. He served 20 years and retired as a master sergeant. He earned himself a commercial pilot's licence and when he retired moved to Wichita to work as a mechanic and a flight instructor. He was known to be extremely fun and outgoing. During his service he would collect recipes from the places that he had travelled to and was considered a very talented chef. At home he was considered a strict parent. He expected straight A's from his kids but he was very proud of them and just wanted the best for them. Julie was a devout Catholic her oldest, Charlie, described her as an angel. She was small and kind-hearted. She also was a brown belt in judo. Julie would take her kids on base and practice judo with them. She was proud of her culture and often encouraged the children to speak Spanish. The kids, Joey and Josephine, made their parents proud. Josephine was 11 years old, a yellow belt in judo, and enjoyed writing poetry in her free time. Joey was nine and he was considered popular at his school. He was a good athlete as well and was considered very talented in judo. January 15, 1974, Dennis Rader was trolling around his neighbourhood when he spotted 33-year-old Julie Otero and her 11-year-old daughter Josephine. Rader had been laid off for two months and he had been consumed with fascinations of strangulation and torture. It was a cold morning and Rader had his Air Force Parker on, loaded with a knife and a .22 caliber pistol. In a briefcase he carried his hit kit. It holds rope, plastic bags, wire cutters, cord and hoods. He waits outside of the house and sees Joey Otero let the dog out. Dennis was not planning on Joseph or Joey to be home. He tells Joey to go inside. Raider follows the nine-year-old inside where the family is making lunch for the kids' school. Raider pulls his pistol and tells the family that he is a wanted man from California. He explains that this is a robbery and they should not worry. The ruse was able to keep the family relatively calm and allowed Raider to tie them up. Raider then instructed them to lie face down in the living room. He explained later on whether we can believe his words or not that he wanted them all to be comfortable. He was in panic mode and at this point was not sure about killing them. Joseph even complained about his constraints being too tight and Raider loosened them for him. Raider's decision to kill them, he says, came from the family's ability to identify him. Since he was not wearing a mask, again, his word is unreliable but it is interesting how he chooses to retell the story. Realising his mistake of leaving his face uncovered, he made the decision that he would have to murder this family. He started with Joseph Otero. He placed a plastic bag over Joseph's face. 
As the father of four sucked for air, the bag sucked in and out of his mouth. He sucked the bag in and chewed a hole through the bag. With an opening, he began gasping for air. Raider placed another bag over Mr. Otorio's head and tightened it with a cord. He then strangled Julie and Josephine. He had never strangled anyone before and assumed the two girls were dead. Raider, having incapacitated three of the four victims, went to work on little Joey. He would not repeat the same mistake he made on Mr. Arturo, and he overlapped the first bag with the two t-shirts and a final bag, all tightened with a cord. As he watched the boy flail for life, Julie, Arturo and Josephine woke up. Julie, watching Joey flail about, screamed for Raider to save him. So Raider actually removed the bag. Julie said, God have mercy on your soul. Raider knew he would have to kill her for good. He grabbed some rope from his hit kit and strangled Julie to death in front of her children. Once Julie was dead, he replaced the bags on Joey's head, grabbed a chair and sat and watched Joey struggle for his life until finally dying from suffocation. Josephine screamed to her lifeless mother in vain. Raider asked if she had a camera because he wanted to take a picture. She replied that she did not have one then asked him what was going to happen to her. He said she would be in heaven with the rest of her family later that night. Raider took the young Josephine down to the basement where he had already prepared a rope for her. Since his days of torturing animals, hanging had been a crucial part of his fantasies. He hung Josephine so her toes could barely touch the floor. The false sense of hope elevated his pleasure. He pulled down the young girl's panties and masturbated as the naked 11-year-old girl strangled to death in the basement below the house. The BTK strangler was born. Charlie, the eldest son of the murdered couple, came home from school to find his family members bound and lifeless. Raider also took his first memento from the Otero family, the wristwatch from Joseph Otero. During the investigation, Police found that no member of the family showed signs of resistance. This led them to believe that the family either knew the killer or that during this atrocity the family felt in some way that they were not in danger. This lends itself to Raider's testimony of being kind to the family while binding them, even to the point of loosening Mr. Otoiro's binds in order to make him more comfortable, convincing his victims that he was a burglar or at most that murder was not his intention, rather his intention was to steal or left ambiguous. Three months later, after the horrific murders of the four Otero family members, the BTK strangler would strike again. He would follow his previous formula, forming his MO and take the life of Catherine Bright. Catherine Bright was born in 1953 and was one of five children. She sung at a local church with her sister and her friend. Catherine graduated from high school in 1971 and went to work at Coleman Company. At the age of 21, she was attending college and considered a popular, intelligent woman. She was beautiful, funny and smart and Raider's next victim. Raider trolled or followed Catherine Bright several times, planning his next murder calling her a sweet kid, addressing his plan, he would come to call Catherine Bright 
project like salt. On April 4th, 1974, Dennis Rader broke through the screen door of Kathleen Bright's house. He was wearing a ski mask and carrying a .22 caliber pistol. He, like the Otero family, was surprised to find that his intended victim was not alone. Catherine's 19-year-old brother Kevin was inside with his sister. Kevin was a small man standing at 5 foot 6 and weighing only 115 pounds. Raider again convinced the two that his intentions are to steal their car. He tells them that he needs it to get away because he is wanted in California. Right away, he knows that he needs to take care of Kevin first in order to fulfill his sexual fantasies with Catherine. When Raider looked back on that day, he could not remember if he had bought his hit kit or not. He doubted it he did, bragging that if he had, the brother would not be alive today. After failed attempts to tie Kevin and Catherine himself, Raider ordered Kevin to tie up his sister. The two had previously broken out of Raider's bonds, he said. They got out of hand. After Kevin tied up Catherine, Raider tied up Kevin. He was tying Kevin's feet to the bedpost, but in the attempt, Kevin put up an incredible fight. Raider became fed up and shot Kevin in the head. He said, I did one of those John Wayne things. He assumed Kevin was dead and moved to the next room to finish binding Catherine and to begin his torment. He started by strangling Catherine to excite himself. In discussing Catherine's torture, Raider said she fought like a hellcat. He continued strangling her until she stopped moving. He believed she was dead. While admiring his work, he heard noises coming from the other room. Kevin was still alive, and now he was coming too. Raider went back into Kevin's room and began strangling him. While strangling Kevin, Raider became worried at the possibility that Kevin might be able to reach the magnum pistol Raider had holstered around his shoulder. Raider placed the finger on over the muzzle in order to jam the weapon. At that point, he either hit or bit Kevin Bright and stood up to fire his .22 at the 19-year-old once more. He shot Kevin for a second time in the head. After his second attempt to kill Kevin, Dennis Raider went back to Catherine's room to finish her off. Raider continued strangling his victim, who again relentlessly fought back. Catherine's fight was so intense that Raider was unable to apply his will and resorted to stabbing Catherine. In his fit, Raider stabbed Catherine 11 times in the stomach. Suspecting Catherine to be dead, Raider left her and he heard noise again coming from Kevin's room. Raider moved out towards Kevin's room and the 19-year-old boy was already running down the street. Dennis began panicking immediately. He rushed around the house to clean up his crime haphazardly. He attempted to steal the car but could not figure it out and instead opted to make a run for it. Dennis Raider ran four to five blocks on Wichita State University to where his car was parked. Kevin was Raider's only victim who had survived. After being shot in the head, Kevin was still able to report Raider's methods from claimed to be a car thief to murder method and other details. This helped form for detectives Raider's MO. Catherine unfortunately did not survive. She did, however, live long enough to get to a phone in her awful state and call the authorities. 
She told the police that she didn't know who did this on the phone. It would take five hours for Catherine to bleed out. Raider fantasized about his victims serving him in the afterlife. He assigned them duties. Joseph Otero would be his bodyguard. Julie would bathe him. Joey would be his young sex valet. Josephine would be a star young maiden and Catherine would be his personal sex bondage girl. That was the end of part one. Join us for part two soon. <laughs>